Yeah, uh, this is quite the setup you guys have here. <laughs> I really appreciate you inviting me here. You want to describe the, the setting uh, that we're in? Or? Yeah, it's a very dark room here uh, with a lot of broke down equipment outside. Actually, if you know anybody that could renovate or retrofit. <laughs> we know some people. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter with Cal Matters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today on the podcast, in Liam Dillon's words, housing legislation drowned in a bath of blood. <laughs> That's the vivid imagery you can expect <laughs> from a Liam Dillon story. Am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and in fact, uh, I'll, I'll give this. Um, so I think that's a little strong. Uh, uh, I, in fact, I give this. Uh, I uh, just filed a story in, yeah. in, which, in which I called it the the Fortnite of failure, uh, and we'll see <laughs> Did if you really. Is yeah. It gonna, oh, okay. And we'll, well, we're going to see if that line makes it keeps it stays in the piece. Oh so. man. Well, it yeah. is alliterative. So we're recording this Friday, May thirty first. Um, technically, today is the deadline for bills to get out of their chamber of origin in the state legislature. Most of that business was wrapped Thursday, and a lot of important housing legislation met, I just want to be as vivid as you are, yeah. the guillotine. Yes, yes. And if they didn't meet the guillotine, they were other parts of them were dismembered, <laughs> right? It's just extending this incredibly gory metaphor that, again, <laughs> Liam Dillon came up with. But I mean, we're not we're not we're not wrong though. We have two great guests to talk about some of the legislation that did and did not pass this past week. Yeah, so we have uh, Cesar Diaz from the State Building and Construction uh, Trades Council, um, and also Dan Dunmoyer from the Building Industry Association. So, labor and developers uh, together on the podcast. Yes, and uh, sometimes together supporting the same bills, and sometimes that doesn't matter. And sometimes very much opposed and. At each other's throats. Yes, two yes. very powerful interest groups in the housing debate here in Sacramento. I also want to thank everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast in recent weeks. They've been really nice. Really nice. Really kind, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it, it really is positive reinforcement, the type that Liam so desperately craves. <laughs> He's literally looking at the reviews as we record the podcast most of the times. Um, oh, you got nothing to say. <laughs> Um, now, for the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery, it, it is... The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. And this fortnight's avocado takes us to Ladera Heights. Have you been there before? Uh, yes. Oh. Yes. Okay. Were you familiar with the neighborhood of Ladera Heights? Yes. Uh, in fact, there's a, a very nice uh, Frank Ocean song. That references uh, Ladera Heights. Mm. So tell us what's happening in Ladera Heights, Matt. Sure. So I'll be quoting from a L.A. Times story. Ladera Heights, just if you don't listen to Frank Ocean, I guess, uh, kind of sandwiched between Culver City and Inglewood in that area of um, west, bordering on south L.A., more west L.A. A 102-year-old woman faces eviction from her longtime residence in unincorporated Ladera Heights so the landlord's daughter can move in instead, according to an eviction notice the woman received. Thelma Smith was given notice, Thelma, on brand name, was given notice March 8th, March 8th that she must vacate the place where she, was, where she has resided for nearly 30 years. Smith's landlord said they were ending her month-to-month -month lease because their daughter is graduating from law school. The only thing I can say is that I've tried to live a good life, Smith told KCBS-TV Channel 2 this week. I never wanted to harm anybody. 
Um, who 100, is co- 102. That is oh, it's rough. getting up there. It's 30 rough. years in the same place. That's really rough. And there's another avocado-y wrinkle to this, a very California avocado-y wrinkle to this. Who is coming to Thelma's rescue? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. Wait in. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger, our former governor, tweeted, Thelma has been a dear friend for a long time. Imagine doing this to a 102-year-old woman who gave back to the community her whole life. It is heartless. Thelma, I'll be reaching out to help. Landlords, you'll hear from me too, which is incredibly ominous coming from the Terminator himself. <laughs> yeah, it's not what you want to hear no. if you're a landlord or really anybody. I do want to say yeah. there is a part of me. Am I the only one that empathizes a little bit with the law school student um, who's moving in? Do you have any empathy there? You're the only one. <laughs> I literally cannot think of anyone so, so, who would have empathy with the law school student over the I'm not saying the landlord. I'm not saying the law school no, student's parents. No. Uh, nope. Nope. No. No. So they're, they're coming back saddled with debt. Yes. Not a cheap place to live. Nope. Doesn't matter. She's 102. She's been there 30 years. Uh, anything else on the uh, 102-year-old uh, just a sad, who's being evicted? Just a sad story. Yeah. Um. Anyway, lots of people are rushing to help her in some way. Her family doesn't live in the neighborhood. Um, But this is absurd on a lot of levels. Do you think Schwarzenegger, when he was governor, and I probably should have looked this up, would have a Republican would have supported some of the uh, tenant protections, many of which didn't make it through the Capitol this week, that uh, could have prevented this from happening? Probably not. Probably not. Probably not. Let's move on to what happened in the legislature this past week, we're going to go over some bills that uh, lived and died. We're going to categorize them in kind of three chunks here. Bills having to do with the supply and production of housing, making it easier for developers to build um, and get at that 3.5 million uh, unit shortage the governor has talked about or at least used to talk about. Hmm. Um, the second are bills having to do with low-income housing and money for affordable housing. And then the third are bills for tenant protection, some of which, as we mentioned, might have helped Thelma. Um, let's start with uh, some of the supply bills. Um, what are the remaining supply bills of, of note? Yeah, so there are a few. I mean, obviously, you know, if you want to hear what happened at SB50, you can listen to the last podcast and, and uh, some of our guests talk about, talk about that a little bit as well. Um, but uh, there is um, a few that, that have remained and probably some that will get more attention now that uh, SB50 is kind of off the table. Um, so one is uh, SB 330, and, and we did uh, talk about this bill before when we had Nancy Skinner, uh, the author, the senator from Berkeley, uh, on our podcast relatively recently. This bill um, aims to limit some local development restrictions. I think one of the high, high-end uh, marquee parts of this is it says um, really limits the amount of rec- parking that local governments are allowed to require uh, very close to transit stops. Uh, in many cases, that's zero. Um, and so that's kind of a big deal. Um, and this would be in place for five years. It's a five-year uh, uh, timeline on this bill which, now. W- which was a provision inserted relatively recently. In front of the Appropriations Committee, uh, Senator Portantino's committee, uh, as we've talked about him a lot, um, that, that was a change that happened in that committee. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So originally this was intended to last— uh, Ten years. Ten years. Yeah. Now it would be only five, which right. is a theme that will be echoed in— what happened to other legislation. Right. Uh, there's a number of uh, bills, again, as we've mentioned, that uh, aim to 
increase the production of these uh, second uh, housing units, um, backyard homes uh, for folks, um, continuing a long line of efforts that the legislature has done in this area. Uh, a number of them advanced. So that 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 will be continuing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were a few other measures. We have a that, podcast on that you can check out as well. Exactly. And we have a few other measures that we haven't really talked about much yet, but probably, again, will get more attention that try to increase the amount of low income building in, in areas where it's not really allowed now. Uh, so wealthier areas, uh, single family neighborhoods. Uh, there are some bills that have survived uh, coming out of the assembly that that try to do that. Um w- there have been both explicit and cryptic hints that SB 50 could be revived in some way before uh, May 31st, before today. Did that happen? No. No. It is still technically possible that that bill or portions of that bill come back alive. Nothing is ever truly dead in the state legislature, but nothing happened before today that I'm aware of. No. Um, okay, let's move to uh, low income housing. Specifically, um, I think honestly, this category of bills kind of did okay overall. I don't know yeah. if you agree with that sentiment, but yeah, I think a lot of the attention in this area kind of spending more money uh, yeah. uh, to help build uh, low-income housing or um, uh, provide uh, you know emergency funding for renters at risk of eviction, things like that. A lot of this has been caught up in the budget conversation, exactly. right? Which we'll know in a couple of weeks ultimately how that ends up. Exactly. Um, but yeah, there was, you know, uh, a bill advanced uh, mirroring a provision in the budget that the governor has put forward to increase the amount of tax credits for to help build um, low-income housing. Yes, this was a bill from uh, Assemblyman David Chu from San Francisco, who had a very busy week last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we should also mention, you want to talk about Senator Jim Bell, Democrat from San Jose, his bill to kind of revive in some form redevelopment. Yeah, so this is a measure that would, uh, uh, we've talked about redevelopment again before, I feel like this is the greatest hits in some way um, uh, uh, podcast. It right? is, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a property tax set aside to allow local governments to use some of that money to predominantly build low-income housing. Uh, Bell has a uh, measure that would would do that. It also advanced out of the Senate. Uh, one big hang-up for this is the governor doesn't support this, this approach. Um, he has different ideas to how to incentivize um, sort of investment in in low income housing um, in cities, uh, and so we'll see ultimately what the what the fate of this is. But you know, without certainly without the approval of the governor, this is not going to go anywhere. Out of all the bills that Senator Bell referenced that he wanted as part of a package um, that would have included SB fifty, I would say SB five was probably the most important to him. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, now let's move on to tenant protections. So. Let me take you back. Let's actually go all the way back to February Mm. when Governor Newsom was delivering his first state of the state. And both you and I perked up. We weren't in the same room together, but I'm assuming you perked up. You often perk up. A perky guy. Yeah. When he called on lawmakers to send him a package of tenant protection bills or at least something that would help tenants against rising rents, displacement, and eviction. In response to that, a group of primarily Bay Area legislators, this included Chu, Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, Assemblyman Rob Bonta, all from the East Bay, actually, Assemblyman Richard Bloom from uh, Southern California, from Santa Monica, Mm -hmm. came out with a package of four bills. This was in uh, March. This was the following month Mm -hmm. um, that would try to help tenants. Um, And one by one... (laughs) Uh, what happened to those bills, Liam? Uh, the guillotine, predominantly. 
So the first one to go was uh, Bloom's bill. This was a measure that would have um, amended the Costa-Hawkins Act, which governs um, rent control rules in the state that we've mentioned uh, very often on on this podcast. This would allowed would have allowed cities and counties to um, implement rent control um, on uh, buildings that were uh, twenty years uh, older. Older, uh, a big change from what's uh, what's allowed now, which is nineteen ninety five, right? Um, and and this would have been rolling, right? So you would have kept kind of kept going. Uh, that bill was shelved before it even had a committee hearing. Yeah. So there was that. Uh, the next one to kind of go down uh, was the rental registry bill um, held in the Assembly Appropriations Committee. So then that was gone. That's Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez's committee. Yeah, from San Diego. Uh, then we had these two bills that are left, the rent cap bill from uh, David Chu and a anti-eviction bill from uh, Rob Bonta. And also um, a joint author was Tim Grayson, also from the, yes. from, the, from the Bay Area. So what happened with these is they got amended and then amended and then amended and then amended. So originally the bill was uh, cap rents at a 5% increase plus inflation every year. And that inflation would be regionally adjusted, but roughly, you know, uh, you know, uh, Five percent plus it, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I think also importantly, the yeah. bill had an exemption for new, new construction. construction. Yeah. So I I believe it was units. It it, it had to be ten years or, or older for right. it to apply. Right. Yeah. Okay. I think it was a rolling. Anyway, go yeah. ahead. So uh, that then it got to let's make a change. Then it got to we were still have opposition. All right. Then it was five uh, percent plus inflation. Uh, well, it's only last ten years, so a sunset. Then, uh, well, maybe that's not good enough either. Let's kick it up to 7% plus inflation, and actually let's only keep it in line for five years now. So really weakening, 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 and then we get to where we were on Wednesday night, very close to the deadline for this bill to get out of the assembly, and uh, we're sitting there on the floor. Mm-hmm. Is this going to come up or not? And all of a sudden— we both wearing ties. Yeah, because you have to on the assembly yeah, floor. Yeah, it's really annoying. Yeah, uh, and then, you know, there's a spark. Those who supported the bill were primarily negotiating with one interest group that opposed the bill. So there were lots of there were lots of powerful interest groups that did not want any form of rent gouging to make it past the assembly. Right. The landlords didn't. Realtors. Yeah. Well, that's who I'm getting to. Oh, well, okay. The strategy on the part of the tenant advocates um, was let's try to peel off the realtors who are incredibly powerful here in the capital. Um, from the landlords and see if we can make a deal with them, and then maybe that'll turn some votes. Giving broader context to this, how many Democrats are in the Assembly? Oh, a whole lot, more than two-thirds. Yes. Yeah. And this bill, not a tax bill, so it would only need— 41. Only need 41 votes. The realtors wanted all of the compromises that you just listed and more. Um, And specifically, they wanted a basically a carve out for quote unquote smaller municipalities and also cities and counties to say no if they uh, an opt out uh, clause yeah, that exactly. that's what yeah. i'm referring to mm-hmm. actually yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. that was the last we kind of heard of it while we were sitting there waiting to see whether the bill would actually be voted on and then lo and behold we get a message there's a deal the realtors are going to withdraw their opposition to the bill what happens next so uh, the deal was announced uh, by uh, Assemblyman as he's introducing the bill. So it comes up for a vote finally in the in the even, early evening on Wednesday. Yeah. And the deal was, okay, uh, 7% plus inflation now uh, three years. So we started at 5% plus inflation with no deadline. And then we got all the way down to 7% plus inflation only lasts for three years. Yeah. And then that measure just barely squeaked by. 
Well, let's get into the drama a little bit. Yeah. You see um, they call for a vote, Mm -hmm. and the vote hangs at the high 30s. Yeah. Um, And then you see members and the Speaker of the Assembly start trying to twist arms. I don't know whatever euphemism you want to use. Yeah, there you go. Whip. um, More votes. Mm -hmm. And then finally, after a, a... I don't know. What was it? Five. 15, yeah, five I was going to say five to fifteen minutes. Yeah. 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 Um, you see some Democrats who had not voted vote for the bill, and it passes. Forty-three. Forty-three votes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I counted uh, afterwards. So there were uh, two two Democrats who were missing. So we could put them aside. But of those that were there, seventeen Democrats uh, voted no or did not vote on the measure. Yeah. There is a, a absurd element to this where, you know, when the news that the realtors broke or when the news that the realtors backed off their opposition to it. Yeah. You know, my reaction was, OK, that's a big deal, um, but you still need the votes. Right. Yep. The landlords still oppose this. Yep. Right. Yep. And, you know, how much sway do the realtors how much how much of a difference does that actually make and i was repeatedly told this is this is huge now we're we're pretty sure we'll get the votes they were they were needing five or six votes to get over that 40 vote threshold mm-hmm. and then magically those votes have materialize once the realtors withdraw a lot of the lawmakers who initially were hesitant to vote for it but then ultimately did vote for it were in solidly blue districts Mm -hmm. they don't have to fear a republican challenger right right that might be funded by a vengeful real estate lobby it is unlikely that they're going to get primaried by a more moderate democrat um funded by the real estate lobby why specifically um the realtors backing off why does that change their vote uh, I don't know if I know the answer better than um, kind of what you talked about uh, in your really good piece um, about the the power of homeowners uh, voting versus the power of renters voting, of which there's substantially less. And so, yes, of course, there's campaign donations. Yes, of course, there's lobbying, all the sort of kind of um, mother's milk of politics, yes. if you will. Um, but at the end of the day, you look at, who is actually participating in elections and the kind of folks that the realtors represent are much more powerful in that respect. Yes. And I think it also should be noted, uh, the realtors, not only do they make campaign donations into collectively as a group, but many individual realtors will yes. donate too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the piece that Liam is referencing was a piece that I had basically wrote before the vote on choose bill saying how tenants have so little power in the Capitol and then uh, had to rewrite the top uh, once choose bill actually passed, um, but emphasized how kind of watered down it it is. Um, beyond just the money, which is what the tenants groups will repeatedly go to as this is why we can't get anything through, and there's definitely truth to that. As you mentioned, uh, renters are significantly less likely to vote and less politically mobilized um, than homeowners. Um, so if you, if you're trying to put specific numbers on it, um, just being a renter in and of itself. So controlling for ethnicity, controlling for education level, controlling for age, all the other factors that are correlated with turnout, um, just being a renter in and of itself means you're about 6% less likely to register to vote, um, which is a 
that that magnitude shouldn't be ignored. Yeah. When you combine it with the fact that renters are predominantly well, that renters are more dis- likely disproportionately yeah. Yeah. lower income, uh, not white, non-white, uh, often uh, not native born and lower educated, the incentive for lawmakers to be responsive to that group is not as strong as other groups. Yeah. Um, even if there's a lot of them in their district, and mm-hmm. even if they pretty overwhelmingly tend Democrat or uh, decline to state. Yeah. 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 And, and it's not just, um, you know, the the rent cap bill advanced, um, uh, but I, I hardly should expect that the sale through the Senate, uh, you know, the landlords I spoke with, the CAA, the Apartment Association, uh, after the fact, uh, they are very much opposed to this measure. Um, and so I think a very long road to go for this bill as it stands. Uh, but it also didn't come with uh, what many see as a companion bill that uh, to really put teeth into what uh, the rent cap bill t- is trying to do. That's right. And you're talking about Rob Bontz's just cause eviction bill. Yeah. So and- the. Well, do you want me to? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so yeah. this this bill, which they've tried to get through the Capitol before and have failed, yeah, um, would basically say, okay, after your lease expires, landlords have to list a specific reason to remove you, um, and in certain circumstances, um, they will have to provide you with some relocation assistance. Both of those parts of the legislation were watered down mm-hmm. before a floor vote that we kind of expected to happen this week and even still it didn't get a vote it didn't, didn't get they, a vote. they didn't bring it up and yes it was amend i mean they agreed to the same three-year deal that yes. to, to, to mirror it with yes. mirror with, with with choose bill the realtors also moved their opposition from that bill as well uh still still wasn't enough yes and there was the agreement to allow landlords that own 10 or less single family homes to be completely exempt from both uh, the just cause bill and the rent gouging cap let me just back out and talk. Take the two together. I mean, certainly, I you know we spoke. Uh, we were about among the small gaggle who spoke with David Chu after the mm-hmm. the, the bill passed. Uh, his bill passed on, on Wednesday evening. Um, he was obviously very happy that that this uh, measure yes. advanced out Visibly of a, out of his house and relieved. Yeah, but I mean, he made a couple of pretty key admissions. Uh, one that um, man without this ju- just cause backing it up, it's not really going to do as much as it as it could number one is the thing he said and number two um well three years is not a very long time and almost certainly we're gonna have to come back then and do try to do it again right so already admitting well this is i mean this is maybe do a something but not even nearly close to what he would have uh what he would have wanted to been able to do and just policy wise the reason why the just cause bill was so important to the efficacy of the rent gouging cap bill was okay if you don't have uh if landlords aren't forced to list the specific reason that they're removing someone from a property and they want to raise the rent to get around that rent cap they could just evict you yes Yes. Now, there is a, a provision in Choose Bill Now that aims to get at that, but it's not nearly as strong as it would no. be if the if the uh, Just Cause bill had advanced as well. No. Is this what you expected going into this week in terms of the tenant bills um, that 
didn't did not make it through. We should also mention there was a bill in the Senate. Yeah, uh, there was a bill in the Senate by Maria Elena Durazo, a senator from the Los Angeles area, that would have made it easier for tenants within a building within a building to unionize and yeah. basically try to prevent landlords from any retaliatory act retaliatory actions. Right. That uh, was one vote shy. One vote shy um, of getting through the Senate. Mm-hmm. So overall, a, a pretty harsh week for tenant bills. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were you surprised at all by by the outcome that we saw? Uh, after what happened with SB 50 and after it was clear that uh, while there may be some thumb on the scale uh, rhetoric wise from the governor and from legislative leadership, uh, the shoulders weren't being thrown into this housing stuff the same way that I had perhaps thought it was going to. Yes. Uh, given that, I'm not surprised at all. Yeah. At what happened. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice. Right. Not with respect to SB 50, but more yeah. with respect to previous tenant legislation that we always that couldn't make it out of the Capitol. The big change this time was um, you had a governor who had actually explicitly and publicly called for tenant protections to be sent to him. Yep. Um, and so all that's left for now is the cap, a watered down rent gouging cap bill. And then I guess uh, Senator Holly Mitchell's bill, uh, which we should mention, which was a victory for tenants groups, too, which yes. was a bill that would basically prohibit um, landlords from discriminating against uh, Section 8 um, tenants. Voucher holders. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I don't know if you consider that a tenant protection bill or not. It's in the same vein. Many of the same groups were, were behind it. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. a notable, notable piece of legislation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what what's left for a housing package? And, and is there any combination of, of what's currently still alive that you would say, wow, Newsom and housing leaders can hold this up as truly substantive reforms that will cure the state's housing crisis or significantly put a dent in it? Uh, should I answer no. Um, and I think that while, again, I don't want to I don't want to diminish the potential policy impacts of some of these uh, other yes. bills that are that are still there. Um, I think given the rhetoric that we had at the beginning of the year, a lot of the promises that were made, a lot of the leadership, uh, you know, uh, Senator Tony Atkins, the leader of the Senate, has been known as someone who cares a lot about housing. Um, but uh, given all of that, the expect where the expectations were um, and what some of the numbers that were being thrown out there in terms of what the need was. The policies do not match that. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Um, I think, I mean, the take home is that many of the bills that died were very heavy lifts, and you need very, very strong arms to lift them, and those arms did not materialize. That's good. That's a good metaphor, and it yeah. fits nicely with our uh, guillotining. You know, I'm always thinking of um, the cover of Atlas Shrugged whenever we talk, so... <laughs> Explain so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, Anything else before we move on? Let's get to our guests. We're here with Dan Dunmoyer, head of the California Building Industry Association, the organization of developers that has a lot of sway here in Sacramento. Dan, thanks for joining us on such short notice. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, so, Dan, why don't we start with what exactly is a developer um, and is there diversity in kind of uh, the membership that you represent? 
You bet, Matt. So, interestingly enough, I didn't really know what the what this meant when I took the job on. I thought my dad was a developer, and I found out he was a builder. So a developer is a little different than a builder. We represent both, but a, a developer actually takes a piece of land that has nothing on it and turns it into lots that can be sold to home builders who then buy those lots and build homes. So it's two different groups of people. Now, some people do both. Some big companies are land developers and builders, but a lot of them just do one of those two things. So we represent both sides of that equation. So companies that, um, like Irvine, who own lot, lot, large lots and large, large land, and they take it and they develop it and they sell it to a builder. Um, we also represent the biggest home builders, like Lennar and KB, and local regional builders, and uh, they just uh, build homes and they buy the lot from a developer. So that's the difference between the two. We represent both. And uh, we hear a lot about infill development versus sprawl, which is probably a term that uh, you probably won't use to describe um, some <laughs> no. of the... Uh, Suburban. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, could you give us an idea of like the, the makeup of your membership through that lens? So other than one of our home builders, pretty much all of them build what I call middle-class housing. We do have one luxury home builder, Toll Brothers, but the rest build what I would call your first or second homes. And um, so, and they tend to build mostly in the suburban areas, um, not necessarily because we don't try to build in the urban areas. It just costs so much more, and you get litigated with CEQA so much more. So it's a matter of cost return, and it's easier to take land. Cows don't sue as much as neighbors do, and so it's easier to build out in the suburbs than it is easier and cheaper uh, than it is to build infill or urban lots. But our builders do both. Lenar Homes builds in San Francisco city proper and also builds out in um, Roseville, California. So you've got people all over the place. So is it a problem that it is easier and cheaper to to build still in the suburbs, uh, given that the state is, for a variety of reasons, trying to encourage uh, building in uh, more urban areas for climate and other reasons? Until the recent regulations on the last week of Governor Brown called the Vehicle Miles Travel Regulations, it has been easier. We're not sure, though, <laughs> if it's going to stay that way, because um, those regulations may add so much cost, it may start to push people more to the city. It just means that people, middle-class people won't be able to buy homes in California, uh, even more so than now. But um, heretofore, it's been easier to build and more affordable to build uh, within uh, you know the suburban areas than the urban areas, and that's why we we elect to go there. Do you think there should be incentives to build more housing, and particularly multifamily housing, in urban centers near jobs? Uh, with the argument obviously being, hey, if you get people closer to jobs, their commutes will be shorter, um, and that means less greenhouse gases. So theoretically, that is accurate. Um, the challenge is, um, <laughs> we saw just uh, evident a few weeks ago, um, there's a lot of resistance to building up and even building multiple homes on lots within major urban corridors. So as you all know, Senate Bill 50 by Senator Weiner, which is now an internationally known measure, <laughs> put on hold. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. This was us. We did it. Yeah, yeah it was pretty right. much yeah. just us. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So... Um, you know, that that just shows how difficult it is even to try to build a duplex or a triplex, let alone a 20-story building. The other thing that's not really fully understood, if once you get past four floors, it costs as much as seven times more to build than it does to build a simple frame home out in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. So 
although there's a lot of push for that, and you know we do build that, um, you really are talking about um, a pocketbook of people who are very well healed, and uh, it's not uncommon for the starting price in urban corridor areas for these homes to start at over a million dollars. So that really reduces your population of buyers. So, yeah, you're right, it would help with greenhouse gas reduction, it would help overall, but one stunning resistance to building infill, and uh, both from a CEQA lawsuit perspective, but also just from a cost perspective. It's just you have such a small group of people who can afford your product that you look to go outside the city because more people, more buyers, and more opportunity to sell is what drives you outside the city. So why why four floors? This is the materials, right? Can you explain why that's the cutoff? It really is materials. Yeah. I mean, you think about a single-family home. You've got a foundation of a foot and a half to three feet max. Once you go past four floors, you've got to go way down. You've got to use steel. You use rebar in a home, a simple single-family home, but you won't be using steel. You bring steel in, you bring in cost plus complexity of labor um, and higher cost labor because it's higher skilled labor. So it's all those things add up. So um, what would make it easier from your folks' perspective to build in uh, urban areas? What could, what could the legislature, what could, what could the governor, what could local governments do? Well, they could support bills like Senate Bill 50, uh, bills that say it's okay to build more units than you're currently allowed to build. And there are parts of San Francisco where it's only single-family residential. So if you could build a fourplex or even a two- or three-story multi-unit apartment, that would make it easier. Um, and I mentioned this before, and I know some people think CEQA doesn't stop housing in California, if you listen to some, but we know for a fact that more lawsuits occur inside the cities than out in the suburbs. So if you want us to build there, just make it easier. Um, I think the third thing, too, is just the fees associated with it. A lot of cities will and want us to put in a whole host of other fees in the urban corridor. They want us to pay for the transportation. They want us to pay for art. They want us to pay for things that really aren't essential to a home. Um, you know, Obviously, police, fire department, water are, are essentials but some of these other issues um, are not. And so there is a tendency in, in some of these key cities um, to really push the fees up, and I'm talking in excess of $150,000 a home. So you isolated basically three policy obstacles that you guys kind of absolutely loathe, right, and that you feel are big barriers to the production of new housing, one being uh, basically local zoning control, right, the thing that SB 50 was trying to remedy in, in some way, um, two being the California Environmental Quality Act, which um, you would argue is unfairly leveraged against developers by third parties, which may not have any real interest in the environment. Um, and three, impact fees. Out of those three priorities, which is most important to you guys? Well, it would be the fees. Really? The fees are unavoidable. So you can work with neighborhoods on CEQA. You still have people who sue because they make a living out of it. So, but that being said, that doesn't happen everywhere. Fees happen everywhere. So it is impossible. This is simple math, not Nobel laureate, simple math, that when you have a $200,000 fee per door, as we call it, per home, there is no way you're going to build a house that's going to be less than $450,000 or $500,000. Are impact fees easier to redress in the legislature than CEQA? From a pure, um, you know, 
simple statement of how to do it, the answer would be yes. From the the policy is very simple. <laughs> the politics are I, stunning. Yeah, yeah, I meant more the politics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean the, the challenge is um, is if we don't have fees for local government. If I was the mayor of of the city, I'd be sitting here telling you, you know, I I understand we charge a lot. You know, Dan's upset about that, but how else do we pay for all this stuff? Right. So if we don't build, then does that mean they don't need this stuff? Um, because we won't build for 20 years in some communities, so they have to have 100 or $200,000, and we don't build for 20 years. So does that mean the city evaporates? No. The city still stays on. It exists. It thrives. So there's a part of it that's urban legend that they have to have these fees to survive because it, it costs so much we don't build there for years, decades. The flip side of that, to their defense, I mean, we do have um, less resources going into cities and more resources, even the money that's being raised in the cities goes to the state. So if the state would go on a diet and give some of the money back to the cities um, and counties, that would help the cities a lot. And, of course, there's these things called pensions and Prop 13, which are sacred cows, right. and that yeah. makes it difficult to do. Well, that's what I was going to bring up. If you change that and allowed some more cities to collect more revenue from um, property, property values yeah. that are escalating rapidly, then they wouldn't have to charge such high impact fees. So would you support uh, reform to the residential side of Prop 13? So that's a big question. Some of our members do, some don't. It's something that we are starting to discuss. Um, Is that a change? It is a change. I think it's a reality that, you know, even a decade ago, even though Prop 13, our housing prices were high, um, we were not being hammered by fees as much. So if you go back to 2006 and seven before the Great Recession, you know, cities had, um, you know, still were charging fees, but since then they've really picked things up because, as you pointed out, you know, property values went down, got reassessed, and they've gone up, but not necessarily enough. Um, so for some of our members, they're open to that dialogue. Others who build and hold on to some of their property, it's like uh, it's hard enough to balance the balance sheet with uh, the taxes where they are. And the big question is, does this really mean we're going to stick it to our elderly folks that have, you know, have the better tax position? Or we're just going to just move their taxes up to from 4000 a year to 14000 a year and solve the crisis? I think we create a whole new crisis. So this is not an easy one to solve. So I'm going to go on a tangent, but I promise I'm going to, I'm going to get to a place here. Um, so I'm a connoisseur of movies about Muppets. Uh, and in these Muppet movies, they're often try to find opponents who are the personification of evil, right? Because who would hurt a Muppet, right? And oftentimes in these movies, the evilest person is developers. And why do you think in this popular conception that developers are seen as really some of the most evil folks around? Great question, and I, I think that's true on many fronts, whether it's Disney fronts, Muppet puppet fronts. Um, I think part of it is it's very easy to paint, you know, a developer as somebody who takes this pristine garden spot, Garden of Eden, then turns it into this concrete jungle. And I'm sure that has occurred. I mean, I, I can see it. Um, at the same point, um, I also seen developers who put master plans together that are just stunningly gorgeous, wonderful lifestyles, parks, pools environments to play and to interact with and communities um mixed use communities you can walk to a nice inexpensive restaurant take your family out for a stroll in the park so you know it's it's an easy place to go uh, and there are some developers who have earned it 
in California, it's impossible to be that kind of developer because it's it's illegal to do just about everything in this state. But I think uh, to be, bring this back a little bit more concrete out of the realm, Muppet realm, um, <laughs> you know, I think I think you you and this happened in the SB fifty debate and in a lot of these debates is that you know a lot of concerns from folks that uh, the market rate developers uh, who are in it for profit, right? Um, are going to t- build, buy up single-family homes or buy up lots uh, of, uh, of uh, say, rent-controlled housing or, uh, you know, a more affordable housing and turn that into luxury development and displace the folks who are living there now. I mean, I cannot tell you how many emails I get from folks who are who worry about those sorts of things. Um, how do you respond to that, uh, to, to those sorts of arguments? Well, I, I have uh, Nobel laureates on both sides of the political spectrum that support my view here. I've got socialists and I've got Milton Friedman. And, you know, whether it's rent control, I mean, the favorite is a Swedish uh, Nobel laureate that says, other than bombing, the best way to destroy a neighborhood is rent control. And, of course, everybody knows Milton Friedman's perspective on this, which is, you know, supply and demand still work. And the reality is, in fact, when you don't create supply, you take less valued properties and make them more valuable. And therefore, you can do exactly what you described. You can take kind of a basic neighborhood and put it into a completely different environment, refurbish it, redesign it, and spend a lot of money and then charge the rents because there's nothing next to it that's being built. And this isn't so radical. It's called Arizona, Nevada, Texas. It's called Salt Lake City. I mean, you do have super high end places in Dallas, but you can also get a place there um, for one third the price of California. It, it seems like in a roundabout way we're talking about tenant protections and, and rent control, right? Or I guess you very explicitly referenced it with the Swedish Nobel laureate. What if you exempt new construction? But, but okay, we, we, we get this part of the argument. We'll, we'll just exempt new construction. Well, you just look at Dr. Richard Green's uh, or study on this from USC. I mean, I'm sitting right now in San Francisco, and uh, you've got people in the city of San Francisco who are living in older properties um, that are making over $700,000 a year that are getting subsidized rents. And the reality of the fact is the rent control is intended to help people that are on a more paycheck-to-paycheck and trying to address the realities and challenges of exorbitant rents. But the reality of, the, of what happens, go to Santa Monica. You don't have a bunch of low-income people living in those beachfront properties. Same thing in San Francisco. So I think you know, the reality of the fact is, is that rent control is proven to hurt the people it's intended to help within just a few years. And that happens. I can point you pick a city with rent control, and I'll, you'll prove my point every single time. So let's, let's bring this directly to legislation. Um, sure. So... Um, uh, you've, you've talked about your support for SB 50. How was that bill? Um, and I think the general consensus was the only way, or at least there was a, a prevailing wisdom that the only way something like that ultimately would have passed is if it, it could have been packaged with other legislation that say would have been, uh, increased spending on low-income development or added protections for some tenants. Was the advantages offered to you folks in SB 50, would that have been enough to, say, support or not oppose some of the tenant protection measures like the the rent caps that were also pending in the legislature? Well, we weren't given that tough choice. Um, I mean, it isn't. I mean, the challenge for us is we call these unicorn bills by the time they're done. So... 
you know, so for us, it's one of those things where if you are required to give away free housing, inclusionary zoning, or, you know, subsidized housing, affordable housing, or pay more than market rate, it just drives the price of what else you try to build to the point where you can't build it. So, no, I mean, SB 50 for us, too, because we don't build as much in the urban corridor for our membership dynamics. It's a good bill, but it's not going to get us to the 3.5 million we need. It's going to get us another 50,000 units, maybe, if it doesn't get Christmas treed any more than it did. Um, but um, it's a positive. Say that step. part one more time. The, so, did you have a unit number? Sorry, 50. I, yeah, he said 50. you said yeah, 50,000. I mean, I'm pulling that somewhat out of the air, but keep in mind, it is still so expensive to build in this urban corridor. As you know, Dan, you know, I did a story back in January um, about negotiations or conversations between uh, builders, developers, and uh, the building construction trades over potentially finding a uh, wage rate that was cheaper than the prevailing wage rate uh, and, 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 and that you folks would pay in exchange for uh, some development relief, streamlining, making it easier to, to build. Um, at the time, Robbie Hunter, uh, the head of the building trades, told me that the negotiations were, quote, very, very close, but now we're five months away uh, from that statement. How close actually are things right now? My humble opinion, um, they weren't close then, and unfortunately, they're not close now. Um, so you know, we have the good news about this discussion is I've, I've got to build a friendship with Robbie Hunter and learn a lot more about the challenges of labor in the state of California, which is a challenge we understood before, but now we understand even better. Um, the bad news is um, we're not you know, really able to put something together at this point. So to, to put a fine point on it, what percentage uh, chance of a deal you think that there is this year on this issue? In the context of this year, I mean, we're beginning to run out of time. Um, so I think the chances this year are pretty slim. I mean, so a very small percentage. All right. Um, I get asked this question a good amount, and I say that I can't answer it, but maybe you can. Uh how much, on average, um, does a developer profit from a infill development? What we shoot for um, is a after-tax profit um, of four to eight percent. So that's generally when you go to a bank or you know, Wall Street, they're looking at an investment that returns after taxes. Um, you know, somewhere in the Right now, we're looking at the projects I've seen recently are in the 4.9 to 7.9 percent range, um, and especially with the market flattening out, those numbers, those profit margins are going to go down more because there's fewer fewer buyers chasing, you know, fewer homes, and that's going to drive the cost of uh, the cost doesn't go down, but the profits will go down, and the number of homes built will go down. We're seeing that already in the first quarter of this year. We're, down nine percent over last uh, first quarter of last year. So, um, but generally speaking, in California, uh, if you net out at eight percent, that's considered a successful profitable event. And that that would still be a good deal of money, not as a percentage, obviously, but as an aggregate sum. Um, so it's a stunningly cyclical industry. If you hit it right, you can make some money. If you hit it wrong, you bankrupt. And we're not talking about gold mines or diamonds. We're talking about building houses. So um, this is, makes it very difficult. In almost every other state in the country, um, it's easier, well, it's certainly easier in about 94% of them than it is in California to make a profit. 
And it's not uncommon for a builder to start a development. You see this all the time, where they do their first tranche, the first leg of it, and then they stop. And it's not because they made so much money they felt guilty. It's because it no longer pencils out. Um, and that's the challenge of, of the California builders. By the time you get it to where it's done and ready to be built, if you aren't lucky with the market, then you start to lose money, and that's making it more and more difficult for people to take risk in this state. Um, Liam is writing a headline as we speak, uh, BIA president, don't invest in real estate. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt saw my thought bubble. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we both tweeted it. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> All right. I think that's it for, for me. Liam, you got anything else? Uh, anything else you want to tell our vast and very important and significant audience, Dan? Yeah, I just appreciate this opportunity and love the fact you guys look at this issue as seriously as you do. Uh, well, flattery will get you everywhere, so we appreciate uh, your time, Dan. Thanks again. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. We are here with Cesar Diaz. He is the legislative director of the State Building and Construction Trades Council. Cesar, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, good morning. Uh, it's great. A pleasure to be here. So tell us about your organization. What do the building trades do and how many people do you represent and everything like that? Uh, the State Building Trades Council is an umbrella organization representing 450,000 men and women who build our infrastructure um, for our modern society. Um, they are members directly of the local unions that we represent, which are 14 different crafts. And those crafts are also part of 22 regional councils throughout the state. So construct, uh, carpenters, electricians, welders, all these folks. Yes, yes. Okay. All the different crafts and essentially vertical construction, road construction, bridges, power plants, refineries, renewable energy plants, hospitals, schools, you name it. Those are building trades members who are building it. Yeah. So you folks care a lot about housing. Uh, why? Abs absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, our members live in yes. homes. And, yeah. and um, because we represent working families, we are also representing not only their economic interests in terms of job opportunities to build homes for uh, whether it be high rises or single family homes or apartment buildings, but also for their own well-being. Because, as you know, in this economy, a lot of workers are struggling. And so we fight to maintain their level of quality of life uh, to make sure that they have access to a middle-class livelihood. Um, but that comes with having the opportunity to provide work for themselves and their family. If, uh, if a developer is trying to build, let's say, um, a condo in San Francisco, what determines whether they're going to use unionized labor or not? It actually has to do with a lot of skill sets, right? Uh, depending on, on the project itself. If we're talking about a, a very small project, technically you probably don't need to have that level of, of higher level skills. But if you're talking about building high-rise apartment buildings like they have in San Francisco, you're building in areas that are very compact. Um, the actual seismic activity, um, you've heard about different developments there that are in trouble because of their leaning and so forth. Um, but you do require a lot of skill sets in terms of crane operators, iron workers. And so when you have that type of work that's involved, you, necess you don't necessarily want to go cheap. You want to go with skill sets because they're highly productive, more efficient, and actually more safe. So you folks take positions on a lot of different legislative policies, bills, and uh, other policies. Uh, this year, you were one of the principal groups behind SB 50. Uh, can you talk about what, what it is about that bill that you supported? Absolutely. Um, well, 
we're looking at the crisis, the housing crisis as a whole, and we see uh, SB 50 as a, a important policy component of a comprehensive package of bills that we'll address. And that's a be, big key issue is production, right? And so when you look at the differences between last year's HB 827. Which and you this, folks opposed. We yeah. opposed that bill yeah. last year. Mm -hmm. There were some key differences. And um, it has protections of local communities. That, that was a very important distinction that was made. Um, and also uh, was focused on job-rich areas and highly resourced areas. Uh, that was a, a also something that we looked at uh, as a very key difference from what it was uh, from SBA 27. Um, after SB 50 was shelved, the Appropriations Committee, you and uh, your uh, uh, counterparts, the Labor Federation, sent a letter to Senator Atkins, uh, the pro tem, and others saying, hey, we would just like to see something like SB 50 uh, come back this year. And you also mentioned two other bills um, for tenant protections, one that would place a rent cap uh, um, uh, statewide, another that would uh, prevent some, some eviction um, evictions from occurring. And those aren't building bills, right? So can you explain wh what it is about them that, that, that you wanted to call out specifically and why you're in support of them? Absolutely. I, I think what, what our letter to the, uh, to the pro tem was to basically um, explain our position. Um, that is, I believe, a position that she shares as well, that um, she has done a lot of great work on housing on bills. And she had a big signature bill in 2017 with SB2 that created a permanent funding source for affordable housing. So we share her commitment in that respect to try to address the root of the problem, which is creating more affordable housing. But when we're talking about production, we're talking about legislation that will kick into effect and will hopefully have an effect to produce more housing and alleviate some of these prices, right, the high cost of the rent in maybe 20 years and 20 years when 10 to 20 years when the actual production actually has an effect in different communities across the state. And that effect might be, um, you know, changing from one reason, from one region to the next. And so while that is happening, people are being displaced today with the high cost of rent or uh, un unjust evictions that are taking place in, in, in areas that, you know, unfortunately are seeing a lot of, of, uh, of uh, new condominium buildings being built, right, that can displace a lot of residents. And so that adds on to the housing crisis when we can actually do something to perhaps stop the bleeding, we should do that. And we believe that 1481 and 1482 are policies that will try to address that, is to keep people in their homes, to not make the situation worse and add on to uh, the housing crisis or the lack of affordable homes that are out there. What is prevailing wage? Prevailing wage is a wage that is set for construction workers, typically on public works projects or uh, projects that are assisted by public financing. And it's basically a wage rate, typically like a minimum wage for a construction worker in a specific craft in an area locality. So if you're a electrician working on a project in, in uh, Sacramento, uh, the local prevailing wage for your area will cover all the public works projects that are in this area. If you're living in Fresno, it's a different wage rate for that electrician as well. Yeah. So it's uh, driven by locality. And can you give us an example just in terms of dollars of what the prevailing wage is for some trade in, in some locality? So sure. just to give the audience an idea of how much money we're talking about. Sure. You could talk about a prevailing wage rate about $64 an hour. 
which includes uh, training that goes back into the apprenticeship system. It includes their medical. Uh, it includes uh, pension contributions uh, and their actual wage. So we call that a total wage package, but it's also listed as a prevailing wage. And, and is that like a carpenter or like who's – what 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 skill? It could be it, like a carpenter, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. A plumber could be like $72 an hour, okay. for example, in yeah. the Bay Area. So there's this line of thought that California should be doing everything it can with its limited resources to produce low-income housing. Uh, and while there's a lot of dispute over how much paying prevailing wage increases cost to build, even some of your own researchers says it does increase costs in some way. So why should developers pay this when we're in such a deep housing shortage, particularly for low-income residents? That is an excellent question. It's so some that we're faced with all times, right? And when you're looking at a public investment, um, think about the, uh, the New Deal where there was huge investment in infrastructure, but it was also a way to create economic development and create a middle class through making sure that people were earning a living wage, a decent living wage. And that actually contributed to the economy, the strongest economy that we had. Um, it's the same situation. When you're building public buildings and public infrastructure, that is often seen as a great economic development motivator and generator, right? Where people are able to earn decent uh, wages, and they're able then to distribute those wages around the local economy. We see public investment in housing as the same thing, is why create more of a need for affordable housing when a construction worker who is actually building those homes isn't earning enough to actually, you know, uh, rent at the market rate prices and actually then would be in line for those homes that they're building. I think there's something very intuitive about that argument, right? The people who build affordable housing should be able to afford to live, you know, close to what they're building, right? But at the same time, there's a lot of professions that don't make nearly as much as prevailing wage would entitle them to, right? What What do you say to that argument? That's a very important question. I think when you look at the industry and the construction industry, you see a lot of ad people taking advantage of construction workers. It's a uh, transient workforce, and once you finish a project, you're constantly moving from one project to the next. So the ability for people to be subject to unsafe working conditions, wage theft, misclassification of their employment status or misclassified as independent contractors, which means that they're not subject to workers' compensation laws in a very dangerous industry, creates sort of a two faces of the construction industry. One is in the unionized industry, which is why we formed unions to protect workers against a lot of those violations. And the other is in the underground economy where there's not these protections. Oftentimes, you see that uh, a lot. So you have that competition that's happening between uh, the, you know, the, the law-abiding contractor versus the you know, low-road contractor. But you also have an industry that is cyclical, that is subject to the whims of the economy, and that you're not necessarily working in your community all the time, right? So if it rains, you're not working. If the contractor, for whatever reason, fails to you know make good on their investments and goes BK, bankrupt or whatever, then you have to find another job. And then you have to actually chase where the work is. Sometimes our construction workers are traveling two to three hours a day just to get to the job site. So 
Uh, I want to go back to the legislation. We talked about uh, a lot of bills that were either shelved or gutted. Um, and so what what happened over the last two weeks? I mean, all these these bills that we mentioned, again, SB 50 is done. Uh, uh, the Just Cause bill, done. 1482, the rent cap bill, uh, pretty gutted. What? So what, what, what happened? Uh, the legislative process in its uh, uh, full view, I, I think that uh, what what you see is basically how hard it is to um, get housing policy done in the state of California. It, it is not, um, you know, a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, it requires a lot of work from a lot of uh, different organizations to try to get these bills across. Not all of them were successful, um, but we did see a lot of coalition building in the process. Um, we got behind those bills uh, as labor because we thought they were an important part of the comprehensive package. We also got behind SB 50. We will always keep hope alive. It's, it's a work in progress, and I think that everyone at the table, from the developer community to the tenant advocates to labor, isn't going to give up on any of these policies. We're going to make sure we get something done. But you guys are the sort of considered the big dog, you know, the big, I mean, the biggest interest group uh, in this space. Um, what does it say if, if you guys can't move it? You know, if you guys are behind something and it can't move and you guys are, again, considered the most powerful organization in this in this area, most influential, eh, you didn't do it. Right. 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 <laughs> right. It's it's not about one organization. Right. And it and you and I had been having a conversation about this. It's easier to take a bill down than to actually pass something. Right. Because for passing something, you need consensus and a lot of people weigh in and uh, whether it be. Uh, deemed stronger or watered down, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the legislative process in and of itself. And so um, we've been at this uh, a few years now, um, four years, I think I can recall, where there was the big buy right uh, announcement that Governor Brown put forward, where it was very aggressive. Um, if you look at what everyone is saying in the legislature, from Democrats to Republicans to the governor, they're very strong statements about what they want to do around housing. And so whether there's one huge you know, bill that passes or uh, dozens of smaller bills, things are getting done on housing at an unprecedented level. So uh, I'm glad you brought up a lot of statements that the, the governor and legislators have made about trying to pass bills that have uh, or that would be matched the extent of the crisis saying that we keep referencing the governor 500,000 homes a year for the next seven years. Uh, is there anything on the table now that you think would would um, meet um, some of that some of that rhetoric? So all hands on deck. Right. And everybody is going to have to put something on the table. Right. And um, for uh, local governments, labor, the environmentalists, the tenant protection groups, and definitely the developers. Um, they have to put some things on the table, too. And I think that's what the governor and legislative leadership from uh, Speaker Rendon to uh, Pro Tem Atkins are indicating that there has to be something done on this issue. For example, what we've been doing is um, meeting with developers that uh, we don't necessarily agree with on a, on a lot of things, as you know, with the BIA and others. Uh, but over the course of uh, several months going into uh, conversations that uh, President Robbie Hunter, uh, my boss in the Organization of the Building Trades, um, has been having with them that is looking to actually reduce a wage package for construction workers so they can provide a price point where developers can actually hire 
at a livable wage construction workers that are skilled to actually accomplish the work that they claim is out there that is in need in terms of a labor shortage. Um, in doing so, we're having communication over what types of policies would help them actually get more homes built, right? From impact fees to streamlining of the judicial review process through where where you actually build or transit and so forth. Um, and um, looking to actually address those issues to actually bring down the cost for them while at the same time hiring good construction workers that are skilled. Uh, I'm glad you referenced that we were going to bring that up, these this conversations between mm -hmm. you folks and, and developers. Uh, we report. I reported in January, as we discussed, and uh, Robbie told me then, you, we, the quote was, quote, very, very close. Um, we're now five months uh, since that quote. Uh, that doesn't seem very close. Uh, mm -hmm. So give me, you know, is this actually a real thing that's still happening or, or it, where, where it, are you? No, I, I think uh, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. It is very difficult uh, when you have uh, organizations that were very far apart uh, to begin with. So having those sort of divisions um, having now created conversations and space definitely takes a lot of time. Um, and this is a huge effort that, to be honest with you, it is very surprising to me how far we have gotten. Even though it is five months uh, since you wrote that article, we have actually sat down and started negotiating an actual legislative language, right? Where we're trying to actually figure out, here's the framework of what we put forward, but here's actually what it would look like in statute. And we are um, having another meeting within the next two weeks to kind of uh, look at some issues that have come up where we did hit a roadblock temporarily, but we're actually trying to get over that because um, there's a lot of interest in this uh, moving forward. Um, why is the building trade so invested in the CEQA process? CEQA is a very important tool. Um, in you know, if you look at uh, CEQA, it does not only touch residential projects; it touches uh, energy projects as well. And so, we want to make sure that the developers, whether it's renewables, whether it's natural gas, are building the most responsible projects. Because if they don't, what you see is a backlash, whether it be in misuse of resources or perhaps a bad placement of a project or something happens that's negative where the backlash then triggers people wanting to stop construction from taking place. And as our members are depending on more construction projects to be online, to actually have access and opportunities to that work, we want to make sure that both we get the work, but it's done in the most environmentally sound possible way. Uh, another factor that's important for us is because we are exposed, our members are exposed to the different types of toxins and carcinogens that any type of project can actually um, create. And so uh, oftentimes CEQA is the only way to engage to make sure that uh, those uh, unsafe standards are addressed. So your boss, again, Robbie, once told me that some labor unions have used CEQA to leverage pay or work rules or other things that are not about the environment directly. Is that an appropriate use of CEQA? We think that when you look at CEQA and you're looking at building in communities, that the community itself, it's, it's a very transparent process that is a community voice, essentially, in development. And our voice as construction workers, yeah, we want to make sure that people earn a decent living um, that people have access to great opportunities 
for that development in that area. Um, also addressing a lot of the environmental concerns. So um, CEQA is a very important tool for the environment, and it also has also had an added benefit of economic opportunities for people in the community. So you said transparent. One of the common criticisms of CEQA is that someone can create a nonprofit, uh, not say who they are, uh, and then use that nonprofit to sue. Sometimes those, those nonprofits could be, say, uh, you know, controlled by business competitors or controlled by union members or controlled by others. So how is that transparent if you don't, if you as a developer don't even know who's suing you? Well, I believe the developers do know uh, who, who's actively yeah, but the engaged public, in but the, the public doesn't. We don't. Yeah, right? the public doesn't. The public does not. But what you'll see is that a community group gets together, right, whether it be with uh, uh, reaching out to labor, which is part of the community. We have, uh, we represent human beings, and human <laughs> beings have a lot of needs, and they live in different communities. And so they're a part of a very democratic process, which is our, our labor unions. And so when a group reaches out to our labor union that's a part of a neighborhood, of course, we're going to want to assist our and, and also provide the added benefit of making sure that apprenticeship opportunities, wage opportunities, so that development and that investment in that community is maximized. Um, I want to take you back to January, um, which feels like seven lifetimes ago. Um, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, Last week seems like a lifetime it does. ago. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, back then, um, there was all these rumors of we're going to get a big housing package this year, right? You had SB 50 still alive. You had uh, some of these tenant bills were about to be introduced. Um, governor saying all sorts of stuff. Go- lots a, of times, a yeah. new governor yeah. much more engaged on housing with this very lofty 3.5 million goal that you referenced earlier. Now it's uh, May, late May, and I'm looking at the legislation that's left, and I'm going, I don't. SB 50's dead. As Lee mentioned, the the tenant bills either have died or have been whittled down significantly. What's left for a big package? Yeah, I I agree with you. There there are bills that are out there, right? That deal. One of them is SB five, right? The, mm-hmm. the Senate passed uh, Senate Bill five with strong bipartisan support. Um, that looks at creating a funding source for affordable housing with infrastructure. Yeah. So that's a very important bill. Um, not sure where that's going to go, but it's a very important part of the conversation to make sure that whether it's done through Senate Bill 5 or within the budget, that can continue to happen. The budget, right? The budget is also another opportunity to get something done. The governor has outlaid, outlined some things that, that uh, his administration wants to accomplish, again, with infrastructure and incentivizing and preparing uh, local governments because I think he is providing that sort of resource already acknowledging that he's going to do something more aggressive, right? And obviously we don't agree with holding up transportation dollars uh, for housing, but he's already outlined that he's going to be very aggressive on, on, on those issues. And so we do believe that there's ample opportunity still because those conversations are very much alive. And you've actually seen a lot of support and a lot of good work go into bills like SB 50 and other bills like 1481 and 1482, where no matter what happens in the end, they can actually come out and something will get done and maybe it get done in the budget. I'm not sure. But mm. I'm, I'm still uh, confident that even with the conversations that we're having with developers, that this will be a big year for housing. All right, that's it for me. Yeah. Anything else you want to 
tell us or tell tell our voluminous amount of listeners? Yeah, uh, this is quite the setup you guys have here. Right? <laughs> I really appreciate you inviting me here. You want to describe the, the setting uh, that we're in? Or? Yeah, it's a very dark room here uh, with a lot of broke down equipment outside. <laughs> <laughs> Low budget. People it, think journalists make a lot of money. We don't. I, I well, we could use the prevailing a, wage. Yeah, you, know? you, you, you probably could. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we that. definitely could. <laughs> you def- are you, you're not misclassified, right? I, I, mean, no, I just want to make sure we can offer employees. protection to you We're employees. Guys. We Great. just unionized. You, you I'm know very proud to, to yeah. know that. Yes, Actually, you. if you know anybody that could renovate or retrofit. <laughs> we know some people. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks, Cesar. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Give Me Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data housing reporter with CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. Uh, Liam Dillon with the LA Times. I'm on Twitter at Dylan Liam. Keep rating and reviewing the podcast, and we'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>